You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Laura Geisert and Adrian Frost. This month, we're reading Smart But Scattered by Peg Dawson and Richard Guare. Let's get into it. Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. Welcome, everybody, back to the SLP Book Club. Today, we are talking about Smart But Scattered, our book for March. And we're going to be going over chapters 19, 20, and 21. These are the chapters that are looking at different executive skills. The format is pretty much the same where there's a little description. They talk about how that skill develops normally in children, a little questionnaire, and then some examples for you to use for your own children or children you're working with. So chapter 19 is about encouraging flexibility. And the executive skill of flexibility refers to the ability to revise plans in the face of obstacles, setbacks, new information, or mistakes. It has to do with being adaptable to changing conditions. And this can be perceived as people who are able to like go with the flow. Oh, they're so flexible. <laughs> oh, good for you. <laughs> Um, If you can't tell, Laura and I both scored low for flexibility when we took the quiz at the beginning of the book. We're bitter. I think I'm getting better at it. I don't know. How do you feel, Laura? Like over the years, you know, I can think back to where any little hiccup in the plan would kind of put me in a bad mood. But I think over time, you know, I've become a little more flexible. Well, I think probably because you're a mom now and things do come up a lot when you have kids, they get sick plans change, you know, there's a lot of things and you're trying to teach them to be flexible. So maybe you have to be flexible too. Uh, No, I wouldn't say I'm more flexible. I'm very, no, No, you know, I gave that example a few episodes ago of the day that I was being very inflexible and how it ended up, I was like, this day turned out better than I thought. So, you know, every time you have an experience like that, you move forward a little bit more flexible. Well, at least you can be honest about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when adults are inflexible, you might see them as people who are easily thrown for a loop or who struggle to adapt to unexpected change. So initially, we don't really expect babies to be flexible. In the beginning, we accommodate them, kind of like feed them when they're hungry, let them sleep when they're tired. And by six months, they should be on more of a schedule that mirrors the family schedule. Meal time should be kind of around the same time as everybody else's. Same with bedtime, I guess. Six months old is kind of a lot to expect that, but you know, <laughs> you should probably be flexible. <laughs> as children progress from infants to preschoolers, we expect them to be flexible in a variety of situations, such as with new babysitters or starting preschool or even spending the night at a relative's house, like a grandparent. We also expect them to adjust to unexpected changes in routines, deal with disappointment, and manage frustrations with a minimum of fuss. So some children are better at this than others, and somewhere between the ages of three and five, most children have learned to manage new situations and unexpected events and either take them in stride or can recover quickly if they're upset. And again, as with all of these chapters, there is a little questionnaire to see how flexible the child in question is. So feel free to check that out. There are some ways that you can encourage flexibility in everyday situations. They mostly require emphasizing environmental modifications if the child has significant problems with flexibility. 
If that's the case, you may notice that these kids also have difficulty handling new situations, transitioning from one situation to another, and dealing with unexpected changes in plans or schedules. So those environmental modifications can look like reducing the novelty of a situation by not introducing a ton of change all at once, taking it slow, keeping to schedules whenever possible, providing advance warning of what's coming next. You can also give the child a script for handling a situation by doing a little rehearsal. You can reduce the complexity of a task so the child doesn't panic when they think they won't remember everything they have to do or when they think they won't succeed. And giving children choices is also helpful because inflexibility arises when they feel like someone's trying to control them and offering choices is kind of a way to give them back some control. I feel like parents do this pretty naturally. I do this often with my four-year-old, you know, sometimes just giving her a choice of like, do you want to wear a dress today or, you know, a shirt and pants that helps her to kind of feel like she has some agency in that decision making. But also when I was reading that over, when I was prepping for this episode, I was thinking about how I have a couple kids on my caseload right now who are really struggling with flexibility and getting a lot of anxiety and having breakdowns, just like it said in the book, when they feel like they're not going to succeed, or they feel like something is just not going the way they want it to do. If the task feels too demanding, and they feel like they cannot be perfect, then everything kind of starts falling apart, they have a lot of anxiety, they start acting out. So I was really looking forward to reading this chapter because I think a lot of kids on the spectrum, not just with ADHD, struggle with this, having really high standards for themselves or those around them, you know? Yeah, I don't know. It's just such a, that is such a tough thing to overcome because you basically have to desensitize the kid to failure. You have to teach them that it's okay to fail and that you learn from it. And we've talked about this in all of the books we've read so far. So it's obviously a big issue for all different types of kids, kids on the spectrum, kids who are perfectionists, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. As the child matures, you can use some strategies to encourage greater flexibility, such as walking a child through an anxiety-producing situation and offering maximum support initially, so they never feel like they're on their own in tackling the task. So this could look like providing physical support from the parents initially, and then melting into the background as a child becomes more comfortable and confident. You can also use social stories to address situations where the child is predictably inflexible. Speech therapists are really familiar with social stories. Most of us have used them at some point. But if you would like more information, you can visit Carol Gray's website and kind of check out some of her social stories. I think she was the one who coined the term and wrote the first one. Mm -hmm. You can also help a child come up with a default strategy for handling situations where her inflexibility causes the most problems. You can use some of the coping strategies in the book called What to Do When Your Brain Gets Stuck by Don Huebner. I need that book. Yeah. Written for children, but also helpful for adults. I think they said it's for kids with OCD. Uh, You know, I was just about to say, although the book is written for children with OCD, it also offers some nice descriptions of what it feels like to be inflexible and coping strategies too. Yeah. So there was an example from the book that I'm going to cover about Manuel. He's five and he attends the afternoon kindergarten session where his mom picks him up at about 2.30 every day. He really, really likes routine and getting him to try new activities requires a lot of coaxing. 
He won't give something new a second chance if his first attempt was negative in any way. His mom has come up with a really specific routine after picking him up from school where they always stop by one store for a snack. She puts on his favorite CD that he likes to listen to, and they ride home the long way so he can finish his snack. If the weather is nice, then he gets to play outside when they get home, and if it's not, he plays with blocks inside. If there's any change at all to this routine, like maybe they have to run an extra errand, it's very upsetting for Manuel and he will stay upset for a couple of hours. So his parents recognize that this will cause more issues long term and they really need to fix it now. The solution they came up with is for Manuel mother and Manuel to draw pictures of their most frequent routine interruptions, like going to the bank or picking up his sister from school. And then they laminate each picture and put it on Velcro. And then Manuel's mother starts changing the routine twice a week intentionally and then eventually bumps it up to three times a week so that he's exposed to those schedule changes more and more often. But she always makes sure to sort of front load Manuel by talking to him about the change the night before so that he's not caught completely off guard. And eventually he gets used to this and his reactions become more mild. And then over time, he becomes more flexible. So that definitely sounds like a situation where, again, there had to be a lot of thought and intention put into the plan beforehand, but it paid off and definitely they'll see less issues with that moving forward. The major keys to this success was reviewing changes in advance and being prepared to add unheralded changes to the intervention. So because the mom was willing to sort of be flexible with the schedule and throw some curveballs at him, it gave him more practice. Just remember to give the child a warning that sometimes unexpected changes occur and that this happens every once in a while. I was going to ask you, how do you handle change? I mean, I don't know if your schedule usually stays pretty consistent, but I used to work with a little bit of a disorganized assistant principal who ran my IEPs and he would literally call me one morning and go, can you do so-and-so's IEP today? And I'd be like, all right. (laughs) So what would you do for those kids who struggled with flexibility where you had them scheduled? Maybe they know like Tuesday's my day in speech. Would you always let the teachers know? Or I can just remember running around frantically to let them know when I would be seeing them instead. I mean, it was a little bit of a nightmare. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I can't say, obviously, there are changes that come to your schedule, no matter what. I did not have a administrator who would change IEP dates or just like drop one on me. But there were times where like, I would forget that there was one happening kind of and like, oh, that's today. Yikes, you know, I don't know, I would just kind of tell the teachers and I felt like the kids were okay with it. I think schools do a pretty good job of introducing a lot of interruptions to the schedule. You know, sometimes you go to pick up kids and they're at an assembly or, you know, they're for some reason at the library or they have an extra recess or something. Yeah. So, you know, I feel like it's okay. You have to expect the unexpected at school, I guess. Yeah. I think I was in a unique situation. (laughs) Gotta love those admins. Uh Uh-huh. So moving on to chapter 20, which is about increasing goal-directed persistence which refers to setting a goal and working toward it without being sidetracked by competing interests. So this is mostly about striving to reach a long-term goal. Examples of this would be, I don't know, an undergraduate student who decides they want to be a speech therapist and has to strive for years and years to get into grad school (laughs) and then complete grad school once you're there. (laughs) Or maybe like a store clerk who wants to be a manager and he has to really put in the work over the course of a year or two to climb the ladder. 
Goal-directed persistence is one of the last executive skills to mature, although most people have been encouraging it in their children since they were very young. So this is as simple as encouraging a child to keep trying even when something's hard. And children most notably learn the idea of persistence through sports or learning a musical instrument. But it could also be by completing tasks such as chores. And again, there's a questionnaire to tell you how good this specific child is at goal-directed persistence. Some ideas of how to increase goal-directed persistence in everyday situations are to start very early, beginning with very brief tasks where the goal is within sight. So this can look like doing puzzles with very few pieces, and you can give the child cues if they need them in order to help them complete it. Or you can also begin with goals that the child actually wants to work on so they're motivated, like building a complicated Lego structure. You can give your child something to look forward to doing when the chore is finished in order to motivate them if you're working on a chore. You'll want to gradually build up the time needed to reach the goals as it's going to help the child to learn about delayed gratification. And you also want to remind the child what he's working towards in order to increase persistence. So this can look like maybe having a picture of the goal item somewhere where they can see it to kind of help with motivation. And that can be much more effective than a verbal reminder because it's a visual. It's like always there. And you can also use technology to provide reminders such as countdown programs that you can put on your computer. So one of the stories in this chapter, and I don't think you're going to cover this story, the child is working towards saving up money for a video game system that he wants, right? Right. And the way that they motivate him, which you just said, having a picture up, is they print out a picture of the video game system and then they cut it into a puzzle. Yeah. And every time he earns $5, he puts a piece up that represents the $5. And once the puzzle is complete, and that's how they keep him motivated. So I created <laughs> I created a few free resources. First, I've created these puzzle overlays that are easy to cut. So they're not the typical puzzle shapes. You just cut straight lines. And I've made them for five piece, 10 piece, 15, 20, and 25 piece puzzles. So if you're a parent or a teacher or a speech therapist, you just put the image of whatever kids are working for into PowerPoint or Word and then put my puzzle pieces over it. And then you've created this puzzle. You print it and cut it out. And I thought it would be good for in the classroom if you're working, like the whole class is working towards maybe an ice cream party or even sometimes with my speech groups, I liked to get all the kids collaborating and working together towards a bigger goal. If one kid especially, or if the whole group was kind of off task a lot or too chatty. And then I'm also creating, you know, those I am working for charts where you put the five or the 10 stars and whatever. Yeah, I'm making for little kids a pretty simple one where instead of doing the stars, you'll do the pieces of the picture the a little puzzle, oh, yeah. a little puzzle. So each piece, and once you've completed the little puzzle, then you get the item. So you say your speech words, you put a piece, and just for the basics like bubbles and Play-Doh and blocks, but then you can also use those puzzle overlays that I oh, okay. have for free. So if this doesn't really make sense, just check our Instagram because I'll put up pictures and videos of how this works, and then you can get them for free on our Patreon or my Teachers Pay Teachers store, Laura G. SLP. All of it's going to be free. So go check it out there. Wow, Laura, seems like you were really inspired by this chapter. (laughs) (laughs) 
And I have to tell you, I love that idea. Like just hearing you talk about it, I'm already thinking of so many different ways you could use that in speech. I really like that you can use it for a short-term reward or a long-term reward, depending on what the child's motivated by. If they're really working for like a game during the last five minutes or Play-Doh, you know, that could be so motivating. Every time you practice five speech words, you get a piece. And then that helps them like... I just love it. And plus combined with the mm-hmm. visual of coming together. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited I about can't it. wait to use it. Yeah. Love that. Okay. Well, the other example from the book was about five-year-old Samuel, a kindergartner who likes to try new things, but he seems pretty quick to stop every activity, either because he loses interest or because it's just too hard. This happens with work tasks like simple chores, but also fun stuff like video games and athletics. His parents note that he seems less confident overall, but after talking with him, they realize that his expectations are just too high and his goal can seem too far off in his mind. So for example, with baseball, he wanted to hit a home run, meaning just hit it off the tee and then out of the yard. But after a few failures, he just figured he'd never get there. So he stopped. His dad offered to help him with hitting if he would agree on shorter, easier goals, such as just any contact with the ball and a short time limit for practice, like five or 10 minutes. Samuel agrees, and they make a chart on the computer to keep track of the number of swings and the number of hits for each day of practice. He gains in confidence and is able to play t-ball in the rec program with his friends. He also disliked putting the dishes in the dishwasher, so initially his parents kept the demand small, only his dish and his glass, and offered an incentive, which was points for each dish or glass beyond that. And then they gradually increased the demand and made the incentive easier to earn. And over the course of a month, he's now putting everyone's dishes in the dishwasher and regularly earning his reward. So way to go, Samuel. (laughs) (laughs) The strategy was successful because they positioned the task before a more preferred task, which helped to motivate him on a task that typically was difficult for him to persist on. This is just like from the book Atomic Habits by James Clear. I don't know if you ever read that book. Oh, yeah. So popular. If an adult wants to learn to do a habit, you do that chaining where you make a rule like I can't sit down and watch TV until I've done five minutes of meditation. And then you get in that habit of meditating. So it's kind of like they're building good habits for him, too. Yeah. I mean, even adults, when you want to do something new or you want to persist on something, I feel like a rule of thumb is that you can't start with too much like You don't want to bite off more than you can chew in the beginning, and then the habit will never stick. So even with adults, like even with myself, it's good to start really small and then build and build and build. And that way you're setting yourself up for success. So So chapter 21 is about cultivating metacognition. So metacognition is the ability to stand back and take a bird's eye view of oneself in a situation. This looks like observing how you problem solve as well as self-monitoring and self-evaluating. This looks like asking yourself, how am I doing? Adults who have this skill can size up a problem situation, take into account multiple pieces of information, and make good decisions about how to proceed. This is also when adults will look at a situation after the fact to kind of review, see what they did right or wrong, and then improve it for the next time. If you feel like you put your foot in your mouth a lot, make decisions you regret, and can't always get a handle on how well you're doing in your endeavors, you could have issues with metacognition. 
Metacognition begins developing during the first year of life as infants work to organize their experiences and begin recognizing cause and effect relationships. These skills get extended during toddlerhood as order, routine, and ritual become more important to children. By preschool, children begin to identify emotions in others and increase their own ability to role play. And between the ages of five and seven, children begin to recognize that others have different thoughts and feelings and they start beginning to interpret intent. So by middle school, children understand their own thoughts, feelings, and intentions. Oh, and that these can be the object of the thinking of others. And this is why middle schoolers can be so self-conscious because they're just starting to realize like, oh, I have thoughts about other people and they have thoughts about me. (laughs) (laughs) This stood out to me because they're like, middle schoolers need to learn that just because other people can think about them doesn't mean they are thinking about them. And I've always been really preoccupied what other people think about me and always worried that people don't like me. And one of the best things my grandma ever said to me was, it's none of my business what people think about me. (laughs) And I was like, oh, if I could go through life like that, that would be so great to not worry. But it's, it's really hard if that's something you worry about. Yeah, I agree. It can be hard to get out of your head, especially because it's like such a mystery. And a lot of the times, whatever you're thinking is probably not even true. Yes. Or we can just tell ourselves that. (laughs) (laughs) By high school, kids tend to have a little more perspective as the building blocks of metacognition accumulate and start falling into place. There is, once again, a questionnaire. So go check that out to determine how well the child you are thinking of has developed their metacognitive skills. And there are two sets of metacognitive skills that you can help a child with. So the first set involves a child's ability to evaluate her performance on a task like a chore and to make changes based on that assessment. And the second set involves the child's ability to evaluate social situations by looking at her own behavior and others' reactions and the behaviors of others. So ding, ding, ding. I personally have had many, many students who have been working on goals related to that second set of metacognition. I actually just yesterday saw something great on Instagram. There's an account called Yellow Finch Learning. It's an SLP and first grade teacher team. Mm. And I think it was the teacher she posted about how she works on this with her kids. And she always asks the question, does your behavior raise other people up or bring other people down? And I just loved that. And she said that it has a big effect and the kids have even started to take it on. She'll hear them say it unprompted. So I'm going to start using that. Yeah, I love that. It's almost like we should cover a book about social emotional learning like soon. (laughs) (laughs) Good idea. Like maybe next month. I don't know. (laughs) Spoiler alert. To help a child develop skills related to task performance, you can provide specific praise for key elements of the specific task. So for example, you could say, wow, I really like the way you put every single block back into the box. Great job. You can also teach your child to evaluate her own performance on a task by asking her something like, how do you think you did? And you can also provide suggestions after she provides her own assessment. You can have the child identify what finished looks like to them. So if the child's job is to empty the dishwasher, you can get him or her to describe what that means for them and then probably what it means for you. (laughs) And you can also teach a set of questions that children can ask themselves when confronted with problem situations. So these could be questions like, what is my plan? Or 
What is the problem I need to solve? And in order to help your child learn to read social situations, you can play a guessing game to teach your child to read facial expressions. I personally do this with my daughter often when we're reading books at bedtime. I will point to one of the characters' faces and say, like, how do you think he's feeling or how do you think she's feeling? And now she's doing it back, which is cute. So if one of them has a weird face, like as we've talked about in episodes before, we're on a Berenstain Bears kick. So sometimes they have like a weird squiggly (laughs) mouth. And she'll be like, oh, what do you think he's thinking about? And it's just a great way to talk about the context of the story. Like, well, he just saw Brother Bear, you know, kick the soccer ball through the window. Maybe he's feeling, you know, upset or worried or whatever. So I really love doing that because it's such a natural opportunity. If you're reading a book, it's really easy to weave that into speech therapy sessions, too. I will ask children often if I'm reading a book you know, just pointing to a character. And that's also a really great like multi-goal activity you can do. When you're just reading a picture book, you can target so many goals. Artic, receptive language, expressive language, comprehension, narrative retell, emotions. You can also do this by playing a game where you take turns making faces at each other and see if the other can guess the feeling. Do you ever do that with your students, Laura? (laughs) No. I do. do. (laughs) It is actually like, I'm not laughing, laughing, but sometimes asking the kids, like, show me worried. And it just looks like, you know, maybe 2% different from their usual (laughs) resting. You can also help children begin to recognize how tone of voice changes the meaning of what is being said. So 55% of communication is facial expression. 38% is tone of voice, and only 7% is actual words spoken. So you can talk about the clues to someone's feelings that can be spotted even when the person is trying to hide his feelings by turning this into a detective game. So looking for little clues like, oh, his face looks pretty calm. But if you look at his leg, he's bouncing it up and down really, really fast, which can be a sign of anxiety. You can also ask your child to identify how his or her actions might make someone feel. The example from the book that I chose to talk about is 11-year-old Yoshi, who is the oldest of three children in her family. She has a really good memory and likes to gather facts about all different things. Her parents and other relatives encourage this behavior. They think it's cute. They think of her as a junior expert and look to her for information at times. But lately, it's been clear that she doesn't know where to draw the line as she often corrects others or dismisses what they have to say and can dominate conversations. This causes issues with her younger siblings and even her closest friends who are really tired of her being such a know-it-all. This behavior has caused conflicts in the classroom, and Yoshi is sometimes aware of people's reactions to her comments or corrections, but she views it as their issue, not hers. When her parents confront her about this, at first she says she isn't doing anything wrong and she's just trying to be helpful, but then she starts to confess that she feels like people don't really like her. Her parents decide that they can work on this at home by asking her to be a listener rather than a talker during family meals. The second step is to accept what people say and not correct them. To start the plan, Yoshi says she will practice being a listener by being the last person at the table to speak after her siblings and her parents have spoken. And when she does speak, she's asking for more information about their topic or giving them compliments. She's allowed to talk about her activities and interests, but not offer her opinions. Yoshi and her parents work out a cueing system so that if she begins to correct or lecture, they can kind of give her a signal and it won't be so obvious. Initially, Yoshi finds it difficult to follow the plan and sits through meals silently. 
But over time, with her parents giving cues and modeling compliments and questions, she's able to do this on her own and interact without giving correction or advice. She carries the strategy over into the school setting and uses the same strategies with her friends and her peers. So she shares her plan with her teacher because I guess she feels comfortable with her teacher, which is really sweet. And even her teacher agrees to cue her if she's being dominant during a classroom discussion or criticizing others. So this was successful because you can't always be on hand to monitor your child's behavior. So you really need an alternative to keep track of progress. And children can sometimes provide that information, especially if you're not with them all the time, but they don't tend to be the best historians. So (laughs) when helping the child evaluate his performance, keep in mind that what's important to you is not always important to your child. So you can try to meet in the middle and work towards a level that the child could feel good about. And that is it for chapters 19, 20, and 21. So I hope you picked up a lot of good tips and tricks listening to us today. Maybe some strategies for specific kids on your caseloads or some new ideas. Stay tuned. Our next episode is going to cover chapters 22, 23, and 24. That episode will be our last one for Smart But Scattered. I can't believe it's already over. This book was quite a doozy. So (laughs) we (laughs) applaud everyone who read with us and made it all the way through to the end. Stay tuned for that episode. Yes. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast. It's a community. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash the SLP Book Club to join the discussion after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? We've made all the resources for this book, including chapter summaries and visuals, available for free on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the SLP book club to download these great materials. To learn more about the SLP book club, go to the slpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club. Find us on TikTok at the SLP book club. 